Well, we live in a world that's full of tribes. And these tribes give us a place of identity in the world. They give us a sense of security from time to time. They let us know who we are in the midst of a world that is always battling uh, for our worship. And I have several tribes that I associate with, and my guess is these tribes let you know a little bit of who I am. For instance, I'm a Texan. I was born here and didn't quite get back as fast as I could. You know, we spent some time away, but we're glad we're back on this soil. You know, there's people that I, preachers that go to preach at other churches I've heard about who had their kids in different states, and people will actually send them soil from Texas so they can scatter the ground out and say their kids were born in Texas. If you are part of this tribe, you understand how deep that runs. If I'm a Texan, that means I'm also an American. I'm a seventh generation member of Churches of Christ, or at least the restoration movement that began prior to that, a heritage of faith that identifies me. I'm a preacher, and there's all kinds of assumptions when I'm at the haircut shop of what that means when I mention that. Uh, There's all kinds of tribes that identify me. I, I, I got a degree from Abilene Christian University, and so that identifies me. But I root for the Longhorns because, let's face it, the Wildcats aren't getting it done right now, right? Now, I love the Longhorns, and I, I heard those hisses, and that happens in, that happened in first service too. We'll come back to that, whoever that was, this morning. But these tribes, they identify us, don't they? They give us a sense of identity. Um, for instance, when I tell people that I'm a Church of Christ preacher, there are assumptions that people bring to what that means and how they would engage me. And when uh, you're from uh, or, or root for a tribe from Norman, Oklahoma, or College Station, Texas, then... Uh, Associating from a tribe from Austin means something as well. We won't get more into that today. But these tribes identify us, and, and this morning I want to talk about the idolatry of tribalism, which is probably not a sermon you've heard much on before. And here's the problem is, the greater our tribe is, the greater temptation it is to elevate that tribe to the top spot in our lives. But when we were baptized into Christ, what we said in our baptism is this is the most important marker for who we are. And every other allegiance, every other tribe that we associate with uh, takes a second place to that prime identity. I want to talk more about that this morning because I think it's vital in this day and this age that we understand how our tribes can pull uh, our attention away from, from God and His place on the throne. Let's pray as we open His Word this morning. Well, I pray today that you would Uh, open us up as you have over the last few weeks to these idols in our lives. We've seen how family can become that. We've seen how uh, greed can become that, how our search for pleasure can become an idol. And and each of these has consequences in our lives. And this morning as we talk about the tribes that we identify with, the groups, the, uh, the identities we have, God, would you help root us in Jesus first and foremost today? That he, that we've decided to follow him and follow him first. He's enough. And so this morning, God, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, over this series, I've talked about Genesis, the opening chapters, quite a bit. And one of those sections is Genesis 1 through 11 that really tells us a lot about our story. There's all kinds of ways you can read it, but one of the ways you can read Genesis 1 through 11 is about the rise of civilization. We see the shift from Genesis 1 in the garden, or Genesis 3 in the garden, all the way to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, where there's a shift from garden to city to even empire building. So after Adam and Eve leave the garden, they become these agriculturalists who begin to work the soil. That's the curse of the ground, right? Is that now there's thorns and thistles, their work is harder. 
in trying to develop what they need. And so they continue to work the ground as agriculturalists. But as the story goes on in Genesis 4, we meet Cain and Abel. And this is a story about the advance of society as well. Abel is the less advanced brother. He's a nomadic herder. When he brings his sacrifice, it's an animal that he brings that he's raised. Cain is the more advanced brother. Uh, he is a settled farmer, and so he brings crops to his sacrifice when it comes to time to give that to God. See, the, the first murder is a story about the problems between brothers and siblings, but it's also about the, the problem of a civilization that's coming of age. The nomadic herder Abel finds conflict with the settled farmer Cain, and the settled farmer invites Abel onto his land and kills him in cold blood. And there's this theme that emerges in the book of Genesis. You'll see this show up several times in those first 11 chapters. It talks about moving east of Eden. Steinbeck uses this title for a novel, but it's about so much more than that. It's about this drift that humans make from our primary identity and understanding of who God is moving east. And that's what happens in the story of Genesis is the people move east. It happens first when they move east out of the garden. That detail is there. But when Cain begins to build his city, he builds it to the east of Eden. And in the case of Cain and his new tribe, it seems that evil is what emerges from this move east. In Genesis 6, verse 5, this is what we read has come of these people who are beginning this drift away from Eden. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. This is a pervasive description, isn't it? They, they, all the time, it seems like evil is always growing and building. So Cain builds this city. And God moves through this, through the, the evil that's there to send a, a flood. It's as if God's starting over with creation 2.0. Noah and his family begin uh, with the ark and the animals. And now God's going to work in a new way to bring about his tribe of people for the sake of the world. And so the story goes on to the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, and evil has built up a head of steam once again when we come there. And chapter 11 is about many things, but as we're on the civilization theory, it's also about technology. You might not be surprised by that. We're not talking about the iPhone, but you know it's really hard to, to build with stones, right? These rounded objects, walls and gates and houses. But there's a technology that comes about in Genesis 11 that allows for empires to be built in a whole new way because now they build with bricks. And bricks can be built upon, can't they? So this is what we read in Genesis chapter 11, verse 3, as we see this city that's rising. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. You notice what emerges in this chapter? It's a sense of tribe, isn't it? A sense of who is us. The pronouns change from mostly singular to now plural. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build a city, all of a sudden there's an identity of people who are together who are working toward a common end. Let us build ourselves a city so we may make a name for ourselves. And that's what tribes do. Tribes understand who's inside. Tribes understand who's outside. They protect the, the interests of those who are insiders and seek security from outside threat. And so it's really important as part of a tribe to know who's in and who's out, as we heard by those whoops a little bit earlier, right? But watch what God does here in Genesis chapter 11, 
as he sees what's happening. This is verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why they called it Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. You see, God scatters this growing tribe. This won't be the last time that God takes a group of people and scatters them for His purposes. We'll get back to that in just a bit. But do you see this move in Genesis? The move from, from garden to this nomadic herder to settled farmer to now city builder to then empire builder. In these 11 chapters, we see the rise of civilization. And it's not without its hardships, and it's not without evil and violence along the way either. In Genesis 12, though, things make a shift. God starts over again. He doesn't destroy the world this time, but this time he works and chooses a a new kind of tribe that will interact in a whole new way. Listen to Genesis chapter 12 as God calls a man named Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country your people, in your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, God picks Abram, and he calls him to leave his his tribe, his family, his, his country, his land, and to go ahead to where God will lead him. And this passage, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, is a revolutionary idea in human history because before then, tribes were all about security of those who were inside and security against those who were outside. But in this new tribe that God's establishing in Genesis 12, he's saying, look, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. But what's the purpose of all of it at the end of verse 3? It's so you'll be a blessing to all the different peoples on earth. This is a tribe that's not just established for its own purposes and its own security. This is a tribe that God is establishing to bless every other tribe, which is a brand new idea. And I'll tell you, it's still a revolutionary idea today. Because our tribes exist for insiders. We're not as far ahead of our time as we think. Genesis 12 is still further than many of our tribes that we associate with today. So God's tribe doesn't exist to make a name for itself like Babel did. God established Israel Not just for Israel's sake alone, he established Israel to bless the entire world. And think about how radical that vision is. Because isn't it so easy to get in our families and in our churches and in our cities and our communities and think about protecting what we have, right? I mean, we've done this for centuries, but God establishes a tribe not for the protection of its own, but so his message and his goodness and his kingdom might expand. But Israel forgets this calling. After they enter into the promised land. They've come a long way from that story. And in 1 Samuel 8, we, we read an incredible text, a story about Israel after they've come of age. In the years have passed, Abram's had Isaac, and Isaac's had Jacob, and Jacob's had Joseph, and they end up in slavery in Egypt. We told this story the last few weeks. They escape into the promised land, and God is setting up a new nation now, a new tribe. And they begin to cry out to the prophet Samuel asking for a king like all the other nations. They look around them and they see that, look at all these other nations. They've got kings who are the figureheads who are here. They've got all these different things. Maybe we should look more like all the other tribes, but they forget that God had called them to be a tribe unlike any other tribe. See, the trouble with this is when they asked for another king, they were forgetting that God 
had been their king all along. Yahweh was king. And the trouble is, Samuel hears this and he thinks, I, he's upset. How could you want another king? You've got Yahweh. Why would you need any other? But they want to look like all the other tribes. And look what God says. It's really important for us to hear this because when we get caught up in our tribalism, I think the same thing is at stake in our lives. This is what God says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. This is what, what his warning is. And the Lord told him, talking about Samuel, Listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And as the story goes on, he says there's four things the king's going to ask of you. He's going to take your young men and he's going to send them off to war. They're going to die in battle. He's going to take your young women into his harem for his own purposes. He'll tax you beyond measure. Does this sound familiar to anyone, right? He'll take you as slaves, take your land from you. And God says, you can do that. You can make this choice. It's up to you. You can have this king. But if you choose this king instead of me, this is what will happen. And when you cry out to me in that day, I'm not going to hear your cry. Listen to what it says in verse 18. When that day comes, you'll cry out for relief from the king you've chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So what do you do as the people of God? Do you accept Yahweh as king? No. They opt for another option. Verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. And what God prophesies happening to Israel is exactly what happens. They start to look like all the other nations. They worship other idols. Their young men get taken into war and die. Their young women get taken into the king's harem, as is in the story of Esther. They come to look like all the other nations, which was never God's vision for Israel. And this tribe who started as slaves in Egypt, I want you to hear the irony of this. This is a group that used to be slaves in Egypt. And when they build the temple of the Lord, they build God's temple, God's house, on the backs of slaves in Jerusalem. How far they have departed from who they were supposed to be and what God had called them to be. And they fell into idolatry. They had idolized their tribe over all the other tribes. So God gives it another go. He starts over again in the New Testament, doesn't he? He still has in mind this vision from Genesis 12 of a tribe that would bless all other nations on earth. He doesn't give up on his dream for the world. So how does he choose to do it? He doesn't start with another Noah or another Abram. No, he sends his son Jesus into the world. And Jesus gathers around him, his disciples. It's interesting, is it? The tribes of Israel, there's 12, and he sets up 12 disciples as a sign of a new Israel, a new group that he's calling and he reveals to them something called the kingdom of God. And he explains, explains what his reign will look like. He heals people and shows what it will one day be. And when they hear kingdom, these people, kingdom of God, they think empire. They think tribe. They think power. They think military conquest. They think in the same old tribal categories of 1 Samuel chapter 8. But Jesus was teaching them about a vision that was older than that. A vision from Genesis 12, a vision where this tribe would be different from all the other tribes. It would seek to use its blessing to be a blessing to all other tribes on earth. He had in mind not a Savior who would come with weapons to take over Rome, but one who would lay down his life in order to redeem 
his people and to include all other tribes in this tribe. Aren't we grateful for this story? Because all of us were part of another tribe, weren't we? We were the Gentiles. God saw to it that even through his people, the Jews, he had a vision larger than that from the very start. I want you to listen to Jesus' words as he is about to ascend to heaven. This is in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Listen again to this all-encompassing gospel, this global gospel that God is calling his people to. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of what? Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. When the God gives them their mission, it's no different than what he gave to Abram, is it? Bless you. I'm going to send my spirit with you. I'll be with you always. But it's not so you gather in Jerusalem and that be it. No, I'm calling you to go into all the world with this message. It's never just been about this tribe. Well, just a few days later in Acts chapter 1, we read about the disciples and their tribal mentality that just never seems to go from them. Listen to these words as Acts opens up and pay close attention to the apostles' interest uh, and where it lies. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about, that's right, the kingdom of God on one occasion while he was eating with them. He gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See how their thinking's still too small? They keep thinking tribal while they're following a global God. They're asking God, are you going to... Are you going to bless our tribe finally, God? Are you going to get us back in power? And he's saying, no, you've missed the point of it all. I'm sure Jesus is thinking, have you guys been paying attention to anything I've been trying to teach you? Yes, I come first to the Jews, but eventually this is going to go to the Gentiles, and you're the very people I'm going to get to do that. We all do this, don't we? We fall into these tribal loyalties and begin to elevate them a bit, don't we? Think about our family. Think about our nation. We think about our church. We tend to focus on ours, but God through the gospel is continually getting us to expand our vision larger than wherever our is traditionally drawn. When's the last time you remember from this stage just praying for all the other churches in our city, in our county? When's the last time we we prayed for all these churches on Greenville Avenue, asking God for all those who believe that Jesus is Lord, we're asking for you to expand it. We don't care if that comes in institutional growth here. What we care is that the kingdom of God comes and it advances in our city. That's a sign of the kingdom when we stop thinking only about ourselves and think about what God's doing overall. And Jesus' response is classic in verse 7. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you catch it? Yeah, it starts in Jerusalem. But this is going to go to Judea, and it's going to go to those hated Samaritans. 
It's even going to go to Rome, and some of you might end up dying at the hands of Nero and others. But the main thing that matters is that my kingdom expands and grows. And in Acts 2, that's what happens, isn't it? Pentecost. It's a great story. It's our story, right? We've pointed people to Acts 2 over and over again, but it's revolutionary. Hear this story in Acts 2 about the Holy Spirit coming on the believers in this scene. This is, when the, when the day, this is uh, Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these all who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. I love this story because this story is the undoing of Babel. Genesis 11, God takes these people who are trying to make a name for themselves and he scatters them, making sure that they can't speak in any language. But what do we see in Acts 2? When the Holy Spirit comes on these people, all of these people who speak different languages are united under this roof as the Holy Spirit comes on them. They're able to understand in the most miraculous way that these Galileans speak and they hear the good news. You know how God spread out the nations before? He does the same thing following this, doesn't he? Some of them have to wait until A.D. 70 to get kicked out by persecution. But God has his way of sending his people out from whatever tribe they're in to the tribes all over the place. At Pentecost, the church gets started and the church is already taking its message to the entire world. We realize that it's not just a tribal group. It's a transnational group of people who are followers of Jesus who are taking his kingdom message to the ends of the earth. It's Genesis 12 in action. Now, there are three stages of human development that are really important for us to be invited into. The first of those happens when we're a baby. It's egocentrism. We develop the ego as parents. We teach our kids that they're special and everything that they have. We help them see their gifts. We build their self-esteem. We get them to a place where they they feel strong about themselves so they can stand up and, and feel good. But it doesn't go well if they stay there forever, right? Some of you right now are like, can we please move past this stage? So what do you do? Well, you move them into a tribal-centric level of awareness. What you say is, hey, in our family, you may have an ego that says certain things, but we do chores around here. Now, you can rush this, right? I mean, if you're griping at your four-year-old for not cutting the lawn straight, then we might be rushing things. But we all have this progress and transition that we're trying to take our kids through from, okay, yes, you're important as an individual. You need to see this, but but we do things as a family in certain ways. We do things in our nation in certain ways. We do things as part of our church community in certain ways. And if you're going to be a part of this family, it means this is the way we do things. But the problem is many of us stall in this tribal-centric level of awareness and never move toward a global-centric or world-centric vision. Because what happens in those teenage years when all their friends veer off course and what you want them to be able to say is, okay, that's great, you have a tribe of friends, but... You know, I don't go this way because I have a sense 
that maybe where the tribe is going isn't good for the rest of the world. That's what you want to build in your kids, isn't it? An ability to say no in the right moments, even when it comes at a cost to their tribe. It's what happened in 1938 when the Nazi party was building and the church was a part of it. And finally, Dietrich Bonhoeffer speaks up and says, this can't go on. No matter what's good for this tribe, this Germany, I have to speak up as a follower of Jesus. At those moments, we don't want to be tribal-centric. Those are the moments we have to stand up and speak as the conscience of the state to say this cannot go on. We're hoping that more and more people would move to this understanding because what appears to be the tribal-centric party line isn't always good for the rest of the tribes. This is what God's project and dream for the world has always been about, isn't it? A tribe that's larger than those smaller categories. A tribe that sees God's good for all tribes on earth. So that's a lot of Bible kind of gone through the whole thing trying to talk about this. But what does this mean in 2017 for us? As I said at the beginning of this series, good and great things are the things we're most tempted to worship. It's not bad things that we're tempted to worship. It's not statues like idolatry years ago. We're tempted by the best things in our lives to elevate them to a place that is not where they should be. Uh, I'm not tempted to idolize Brussels sprouts or Spam. But there are other meals that I I might eat a little too much of. And idolatry is most often not turning bad things into worship, but turning our best things, our good things, into ultimate things. And for too long, there's been a blending of American Christians and our national loyalties that somehow see this mixed in with our commitment to Jesus. It all started a long time ago with Emperor Constantine. Um, He saw a, a place for the church and the empire to kind of get together and realized that Christianity was on the rise, it's probably time to to see a connection here. And so he begins to unite the Roman Empire. And the same Roman Empire with the same swords that had killed Christians now is putting the sword to pagans who are not willing to be baptized and convert to Christianity. See, the separation of church and state is a blessing to the church because it protects the church from being persecuted or coerced by uh, the government. Ask the people who came to America from Europe, and they all said this is a good thing, yes, We desire this freedom. But some of us have such pride in our nation that we forget that God's main concern has never been blessing one nation. His greatest concern has always been His multinational church expanding His kingdom influence no matter the arbitrary lines that change over time. And if we're honest about the missions enterprise in our world today, America is not the center of the kingdom of God as it's growing. That goes to the global south. It's in Africa, in Asia, in South America, where the kingdom is growing by leaps and bounds. And our prayer is that revival would come here, but let's see our situation as it is. Some of us think that if America wasn't here in 25 years, that God couldn't, couldn't somehow expand the kingdom without us. But that's just short-sighted history, isn't it? Because every empire, every country that believed it was always going to last forever, it didn't happen. And history is the graveyard of those gods, of Greece, of Babylon, of Rome, of Assyria. But the kingdom of God has never missed a beat. See, at the root of nationalism is a lack of historical perspective in which we forget the transitory natures of the kingdoms of this world. How many kingdoms imagine themselves to be eternal kingdoms that are now just dust, ruins? Now, there's a remarkable difference between nationalism and patriotism. And I want to paint this picture clearly today. There are things to love about one's country. I love living in this country with many of the freedoms that we have. I love apple pie and baseball and Elvis. 
But it's important to see not just the good, it's important to acknowledge uh, the bad too. Democracy is a remarkable social, social experiment. I'm grateful for the ways that America has advanced that. But here's the rub. You see, a patriot does not love one's country so much that she or he is willing to ignore the skeletons in their tribe's closet. Every single country, nation, or state has skeletons in their closet. And in the United States, it happens to be the treatment of the Native Americans and African slaves. We still have continuing sins we struggle to adjudicate and work through. In fact, more slaves died in the Middle Passage from Africa to the New World than Jews who died during the Holocaust. And we still have our current sins. We need to continue to look for No, Nobody gets to just kind of cast a blind eye. We are the conscience of the state in the words of Martin Luther King Jr. And if we remember, it was Jesus who was crucified by religious nationalists who saw their own tribe as more important than the message of justice and hope and mercy and God's breaking love into the entire world. So a few weeks ago, there was a speech in Washington, D.C. that had had a few viewers. might have heard about it. And in that speech, uh, our president did what tribal leaders have done for centuries. He said, from this day forward, it's going to be America first. And and that's a fine slogan uh, for a president to hold. We would expect no other from a leader of any tribe. But let us not forget the tribal nature of that statement. Because as for me, in my baptism, my loyalty was committed to the kingdom of God before any other kingdom. And this president's not the first to make such claims. President Obama made a similar claim when he said that America is the last best hope on earth. That is an idolatrous claim because it's Jesus alone who is the last best hope on earth. The kingdom of God doesn't serve tribal agendas. The kingdom of God doesn't wave partisan flags. The kingdom of God is not found where tribes seek the allegiance of their people to the tribe first. Our slogan in the kingdom is kingdom first. God's not a fan of any nation. He doesn't wave his flag and partisan support in the heavens. God is most interested in his church being a contrast community just as he announced to Abram in Genesis 12. I bless you, but I bless you so that you can be a blessing to all nations on earth. I have many tribal identities. I'm a Texan. I'm I'm a proud American. There's so much I'm grateful for in this country. I'm Caucasian. I'm a wildcat. I'm a longhorn. I'm a preacher. I'm a Greenville Oaks Church of Christer. All of these tribal identities explain a bit of who I am. But none of these truly explains who I am as well as Christian. My hope is that if people know that I'm a Christian, what it means is they know what I'm going to say no to and what I'm going to say yes to based on that tribe, based on the book that we claim to follow, based on the kingdom that Jesus preached. And when other tribes become more important to us than that first commitment, our Christian commitment, it's idolatry. And that means that any of my other tribes that ask me to act in a way that betrays my commitment to Jesus means I say yes to Jesus and I say no to any of those secondary commitments. Last week, I, I, I asked a question when it came to greed and when it came to materialism. It was a, it's a hard question. I think it's the question for all of our idolatries, however you fill in this blank. And the question was this. If it took the demise of my riches for the kingdom of God to grow in my life, would I welcome it? Same could be asked about our family idols we talked about several weeks ago. If it took God doing something in our family that we wouldn't want for God's kingdom to grow, I don't know fully what that looks like, but, but Abram in Genesis 22 has to say, I'm willing to sacrifice Isaac for God. 
the rich young ruler was asked the same question. Are you willing to give up your riches for God? And this week, I think the question fits, but it's a, it's a difficult question. The question is this. If it took the decline of the United States for the kingdom of God to grow in North America, would you welcome it? And that's a question that strikes right at the core of each one of us, aren't we? Because we have these identities that hold on to us and that have themselves in us. This is not a sermon about how bad America is. That's the whole point of this message series. It's the best of these things that tempt us to idolatry. So this morning, whatever it is, it may be this idol, it may be others in your life, but whatever it is that it's a struggle for you that you realize probably has more of a connection to you, anytime we we take something God's created and we elevate to the place that only God should take, there's problems that are the result. So for the next few weeks, what I want to do is I want to move from helping us assess what are those idols to say, what are the deeper needs underneath that? And eventually, how do we return our, our loyalty, our worship to God first and foremost? And, and so I hope that over these last four weeks, you found what it might be. Again, what I said was the one that makes you most angry may just be that idol. For me, this has been a challenge to walk through this series because I've seen places in my life that I still have idols that are at work. And I want to dethrone those. I don't know about you. We'll put God in the place that he deserves. This is how he ordered his world, is for us to put him on the throne and to love others as we love ourselves second. Let's uh, pray as we close our time in the word this morning. God, I, I thank you so much for this meal that we're about to partake in. This meal is being taken in tribes across the world today. Uh, it's just simple cracker and juice. It's bread and cup. And there's so many things that divide us, God, when we come to a table like this. But what I love about this meal is that people across the centuries, across the world, they've been eating this meal trying to remind themselves of what's most important. God, I've I got to confess, this is one of those conversations and idols that's a struggle because it seems like such a good thing and how could we how do we adjudicate and work out these conflicts god i pray for that dream you established in genesis 12 that that dream that you lived out through jesus christ through the kingdom of god that you he preached i pray that we'd have a vision that's bigger than our tribes we thank you for our families god we thank you for this country I, i pray this morning for our leaders who are in positions of power, God, that you would, you would lead them in ways toward wisdom so that we might live quiet lives, being able to pass on that most important message of the kingdom. God, this morning, I pray that as we take this bread, as we take this cup, that we'll be reminded of all those that we share a common humanity with, a common story with, a common kingdom with. It's in the name of Jesus. With. It's in the name of Jesus.